And uh, it's been a good week here at Every Nation, and I've enjoyed uh, study and good conversations, good visits, and um, there's good busy and bad busy, and this week was a week of good busy. Uh, before we get into the actual text, I wanted to share something that will be up here after the service. Drew uh, got this for me this week. It is Spike Nard. If you were here last week, you know that we looked at Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And so if you want an idea of what that probably smelled like, then this is the, uh, the ticket. So um, I'll leave this down here. I guess it puts, uh, it puts feet to the Bible, or it puts noses to the Bible, as the case may be but uh, gives you a little chance to experience what was there on that day. John 12 is our text today, and normally on Covenant Sunday, I kind of deviate and I go elsewhere, but as I was looking at what was next in our regular preaching schedule, I decided that it fit quite perfectly with Covenant Sunday, because in this passage, Jesus calls for uh, commitment, he calls for service, he calls for complete surrender, and I think that really lines up with um, our, the heart of our covenant. And uh, there's a sense in which we can say that some of the teachings of Jesus are difficult or hard to hear, but when embraced and when understood, they are deeply helpful, deeply life-changing, and always worth it. So this is what I have found uh, in my own experience. And let us, if you're able to stand... Stand with me, John 12, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 33. John chapter 12, beginning in verse number 12. And the Bible says, On the next day, many people who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, for they heard that he had done this miracle. Therefore, the Pharisees said among themselves, You perceive how you accomplish nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them who came up to worship at the feast. Therefore, the same came to Philip who was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Then Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He who loves his life shall lose it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. If any man serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant shall be also. 
If any man serves me, my Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your own sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world shall be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. He said this, signifying what death he would die. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this passage in your word. I thank you for the truths of it. Give me grace and help as I preach, and I look for what you will do through the passage in every heart. Thank you for saying these words. Thank you for keeping them for us. And may they bear fruit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you've had a moment in your life where you said something and you realized that you had horrible timing with what you said. Maybe it was a joke that was ill-timed. Maybe it was a comment that was ill-timed. And maybe someone overheard. Maybe it was just what was about to develop. Bad timing. And sometimes we say something, and the reason it has such bad timing is what happens next. What happens following. And when you put two and two together, people just shake their head. I was thinking of some examples, but I thought in my own life, either they're too painful to share or... I just uh, have forgotten some of them. Um, but sometimes you go through that and you want to forget uh, that, right? Bad timing. But as we think about some of the things Jesus says, he has, humanly speaking, he has really bad timing if you don't look at it in its fullness and through the eyes of faith. Jesus, in this passage, is saying some really big, big things. And in a few days, where is he going to be? Dying on a cross. And the people that heard this, or the people that heard some of his teachings, they, especially if they didn't understand certain things he was saying, or they rejected certain things he was saying, they would say, look at him now. Look at him now. You know, why on earth would I give any attention to what you have to say? Because now you are dying as a criminal on the cross, and your story is over. Story over for you, moving on. But you know, I think for the believer and for those who have come to see that Jesus spoke truth and that he is the son of God and he is the way, the truth, and the life, when we see what he says here, knowing he's about to die, it becomes all the more meaningful. It becomes all the more powerful for us. In Philippians 2, which we've been studying Wednesday nights, Philippians 2 says this of Jesus, but made himself of no reputation and took on himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. This passage, we see this kind of playing out. And Jesus is saying that this is the moment. This is the time that he came for. He came for this hour. We'll look real briefly at some of the first verses, but in verse 12 through 16, we find the triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus enters Jerusalem to the crowds, 
to the, the fanfare, there were crowds of people. And it's easy to kind of presume and assume, but we know that during the Passover period, Jerusalem would just absolutely pack to overflowing. People would stay outside the city. The city would be jammed full. And some people say estimates range, but from 200,000 all the way up to a million people would flood into Jerusalem. And so the idea that there was crowds is not hard to imagine. But in these first few verses, we find Jesus entering, riding on a donkey. There's crowds of people with palm leaves and with palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna means save now or oh save. And it, it kind of fits with this idea of the kingship of Jesus. In other words, you're the king, save us. We're underneath you. We're, your power can save us, so save us, save now. And there were some people that saw Jesus as a king. They looked for him. They trusted in him. And for the disciple, and maybe for those who had this political idea of Jesus as a, a political deliverer, this was a really good moment. That, you know, if you're, if you're running a political campaign and you have crowds of people rejoicing in your candidate, you're saying, hey, things are going good right now. But in a just few days, things are going to shift very dramatically. Another thing I just want to quickly point out is that some people say it's, it's the same crowd that later said, crucify him, crucify him. Well, we don't know that because there were so many people in Jerusalem. And the idea that it was all the same people is really a stretch. There may have been some of the same people and it may have been a completely different crowd. We don't know for sure. But he comes in riding on a donkey. A donkey was a symbol of peace. It was a symbol of non-aggression. Uh, a king who was coming in in victory would ride a horse. And if you know anything about Bible prophecy, the Bible says that one day Jesus will return to earth riding a white horse. But here in this passage, he rides a donkey. So quickly then, verse 17 and 18, the people are talking. And in verse 17, we have people that saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And they're saying, hey, I saw him. I saw Lazarus come out of the grave. I saw what Jesus did. And then there's other people who are hearing about this. And they're coming and they're wanting to see Jesus. And they're wanting to meet the, the one who did this miracle. And so there's a lot of swirl. And I, I just call this section publicity and perceptions. Because there's a lot of talk about Jesus. But in verse 20, we find a, a, a new thing. And John writes about this more than the others but in, in the Gospel of John, we find repeated references to the fact that Jesus came for all people. When Jesus came, he came to the Israeli people. He came to the Israeli nation. He did present himself as their promised Messiah. But especially as he goes forward and closer to his death, there's more talk about those beyond just the Jewish people. And you know, as I look around the congregation, he's talking about us. We are the ones that, that were outside of the Jewish nation. And he came for us also. So these Greeks come to Jesus and they say, we, I'm sorry, first they come to Philip. And I don't know all the reasons they came to Philip. But they come to Philip and they say, hey, we, we want to see Jesus. Now, Philip had a Greek name. Maybe he spoke their language. We don't know all the, the background. We don't quite know why they, they didn't just approach Jesus directly. But they come to Philip, and then Philip goes to Andrew, and then Philip and Andrew both go to Jesus, and they bring this request to Jesus. And what is very peculiar to me is why and how Jesus answers them. You know, in my mind, we want to see Jesus. They wanted to talk with Jesus. 
it seems like a very simple request, and it seems like it would have a simple answer. Yes or no. You know, uh, yes, you can see me. No, you can't. Maybe a wait, I'll see you later. And if I could summarize the answer of Jesus, it is a wait, I'll see you later. But it's a very strange and in-depth answer. Uh, a simple request to see Jesus, there's this long, complicated answer. And this is where I want to focus the most of our time this morning, is on verse 23 down to verse 28. Philip and Andrew are coming with this request. We don't know if the Greeks are right with them, if they all come as a group. We don't know if it's just Philip and Andrew and the Greeks are waiting aside somewhere else. But they say, sir, we want to see Jesus. Simple request. Simple uh, desire. And clearly, the, the phrase earlier, the Pharisees are all worried. The whole world has gone after him. And yes, even non-Jews are interested in Jesus. And so they come with this request to see Jesus. But I want you to listen to the answer that Jesus gives. And Jesus, in my estimation, is saying, just wait. He's saying, just hold on. This is not the best time. Just give it a few days. But listen to the answer of Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. As we read the text, we might imagine Jesus would say, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be crucified. But, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And again, Jesus is presenting that the hour, this time, this purpose of Him coming is now right on the scene. The hour has come. If you remember earlier in John, Jesus had said, the hour is not come. In John 2, Jesus told His mother, the hour has not come. In John chapter 7, he says, my time has not yet come. In John 7 later, uh, the, the writer, John, says his hour was not yet come. In John 8, 20, it says, Jesus spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Jesus is saying the time, the purpose, the whole climax of why I am here is now. And he says the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I think maybe the disciples were saying, yay, we've seen the crowds. We've seen all the fanfare. They're saying Hosanna. Things are happening. You know, the, the Pharisees and the high priests, they seem to be falling apart. The hour has come for you to be glorified. Did Jesus tell the truth? He absolutely told the truth. The time had come for Jesus to be glorified. But it was not in the way that they were thinking. It was not with their mind's eye. When I think of glorified, I don't think of naked, suffering on a tree in public humiliation and then dead and in the tomb. That is not glorification to me. That sounds very backwards to glorification. But the Bible says, and Jesus says, that this was the hour that the Son of Man should be glorified. If you remember that reading from Philippians, at the end it says, therefore... God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. The glorification of Jesus was now. And Jesus says, this is my time. This is my hour. And this is the glory that he talks about. So let's, I hope, see some of that glory as we go through the text. But Jesus takes it a step further in verse 24. And he begins to talk specifically about what this would look like. Verse 24, we find death. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. I am not a gardener, and I am a really bad gardener when I try to be a gardener. My wife does pretty well with it. I am awful at it. But I do know enough to know about planting that if you have seeds in a packet, those little packets at the dollar store or at the grocery store, they used to be like 25 cents, you know, back in the day. Now they're probably like $1.99 or something. I don't know. But you have this packet of seeds. And you know one thing I've observed is there's never, ever, ever been a time that right out of that packet grows the plant and right out of that packet just comes out beans and there they are. That's not how they work, right? You have to open up that packet and even if you open up the packet and you set it there, let's say, on your kitchen sink window and you leave those seeds right there, there's never been a time that that bean seed just sitting there on the kitchen sink window sprouts into a plant and it just becomes a plant and there you just pick beans right in front of your kitchen window. That's not how it works. Jesus says what has to happen is that, that grain, that seed, it has to die and it has to go in the ground. And he says, this is how it works. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. So Jesus is going from the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified to you have to drop the seed into the earth and let it die. Okay, that's, that's a little different. Um, so he starts talking about death and he's using this analogy and, and uh, okay, but, but notice how he says it falls into the ground and dies. There's almost this picture of burial there, isn't there? You have to bury this seed and it has to be dead. And then he says, if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. If it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Now, we like much fruit. We like that. And we say, oh, Jesus is talking about bearing lots of fruit. And so he's going to be glorified and he's going to bear lots of fruit. But he says there's something in the middle. There's something that happens in the middle and that is death and burial. And it dies. And, and if it remains alone, then it's not going to die. But if it, if it is placed down into the earth and if it truly is dead, then out of that will come fruit. This is where the message of Jesus gets difficult because in the next verse, he's going to start applying it not to himself, but to them. And this is where Jesus is saying, look, out of death comes life. And out of this uh, season and this moment of deep humiliation, there's coming life. There's coming fruit. And in fact, much fruit. And you know, as we think about life, life is a precious thing, isn't it? Life is a beautiful and an important and a precious thing. And that's why in our land we have laws about murdering people. Because one of the most awful experience anyone can go through is to have a loved one taken in murder, right? And that life is snuffed out. And that person is suddenly gone. And life is precious. Life is so important. And Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of God, says, let's talk about the seed. Let's talk about it falling in the earth and Let's talk about it dying and then bearing fruit. And it all sounds very theoretical. And it all makes a lot of sense. And they could shake their head and say, yes, yes, that's how it works. But Jesus is saying that death 
precedes life. And that out of death comes fruitfulness. And in just a few days, these disciples are going to watch Jesus die. And they're going to shake their head. And they're going to say, oh, it's all over. All these hopes, all these dreams, they are dead and gone. And Peter says, let's go back to fishing. And everything that they wanted out of Jesus was suddenly gone. And everything they thought would come to be was suddenly gone. But Jesus is saying, there's death. And then out of that comes life. Out of that comes fruit. If there's one thing that I would want to urge you here today, that is that Jesus calls us to eternal life in Him. And that is the beautiful and the the easy and the glorious side of Christianity is that eternal life is a free gift. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to come to church for it. I don't have to be good enough for it. In fact, it's very opposite. I have to be recognizing my wickedness and my sinfulness to receive the gift of eternal life found in Jesus Christ. It is given freely. But it is after this that the Lord Jesus calls us to a death. He talks about His own death. But notice verse 25. In verse 25, He gets very personal with them. And this is what I call letting go. He who loves his life shall lose it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. This is very different. This is very painful to think about and to meditate and to apply to ourselves. But Jesus gives a promise here. And his promise is this. If you love the life that you have, you're actually going to lose out. But if you hate the life you have, you will keep it to eternal life. Now let's talk about loving and hating here for a minute. When he says that you need to hate your life, I don't think he means that you need to wake up in the morning and say, boy, I just hate life. I just hate living. I wish I didn't exist. Life's hard and I just hate it. I don't believe that's what he's calling us to. But he is calling us to hating and not specifically, when, we, when Jesus uses hate and love, they're comparative. And he says we can love our life and we can lose it. Or we can hate our life and we can keep it on into eternal life. And he's talking about valuing. He's talking about the way we see our life. Let's, let's take a quick pause here and let's look at Jesus and what he did. And then see how he wants us to walk in his steps. Okay, When Jesus came... He came and he lived his life for others. He loved his mother. He loved his family. He served for many years in obscurity. He wasn't doing miracles the whole time. But then there was a certain stage of life where he was publicly declaring who he was. But even during this stage, he was living for others. He was giving his life for others. He didn't treasure his life for his own self, but rather he gave it away to others. He yielded his life for God's purposes to be used for others. And when it came time to give up his life as a sacrifice for our sins, he didn't hold on to it and say, mine. That is the style of life that Jesus is calling us to. And he says, if you love your life, and if you say, oh, this is mine, this is for me, this money is for me, and my talents are for me, and this life is about me, guess what? you're going to lose your life because at the end of it, that me, that life that's used up for self is going to be gone and you'll head off into eternal life. Yes, into eternity. Yes, into being with Christ even if you were born again. 
but you'll head off into eternal life having lost out, having wasted the life that you had. But on the flip side, he says, if you hate your life in this world, and by this he means if you let go of it, if you reject that approach, and if you say, my life is but to serve God, my life is to be given for others, my purpose for existing is for God's glory. The Bible says that in this life, in this world, excuse me, if you hate your life, you'll keep it to eternal life. We'll keep it. I, I just feel so limited to even fully explain this. But may I just encourage you to meditate on this and ask the Lord to help you to truly understand this. Each of us wants our life to mean something, don't we? None of us says, I want to just waste my life and, you know, just throw it all away. We don't think that way, right? And Jesus here is saying that how we value things and if we're valuing ourselves and if we're not valuing God's purposes and God's glory, we're going to waste our life. And Jesus in this moment is not just talking about himself. He's not just saying, I am, uh, am keeping my life into eternal life. No, he's teaching Andrew and he's teaching Philip and he's saying, you have to value your life differently. And if you hold on to it and cling to it, it will slip through your fingers and be gone. But if you yield it to God, if you give it over to the Lord and say, Lord, here is my life, I will live it for you. Jesus and the Father will honor that and they will take that life, they'll bless it, and it, that blessing will go on into eternity. And remember, he's, he's teaching his disciples this right before he gives his own life, right before he himself dies. So this is what I call letting go. Christian, Jesus calls us to let go of our ideas for our own life. If we were writing our own stories, we wouldn't include some chapters, would we? There are some chapters where in our life we'd say, oh, that's not how the story goes. Here's the pen. This is how I want the story to go. And usually it involves more comfort, more fun, more money, better relationships, right? This is how we would write the story. This is how I want the story to be. And Jesus says, no. If you will let go of your life, if you will yield your life and not cling to it, but say, dear God, here is my life, what happens is that God writes the story, and guess what? That story doesn't have an ending, but it goes right on into eternal life. That sounds pretty good to me. But you know what doesn't sound good to me? Death. Dying. Hating our life. That doesn't sound good to me. This sounds difficult to me. This sounds painful to me. But Jesus again says, if that seed is in the ground, and if that seed dies, it, bear, it lives and it bears much fruit. Let me ask you a question about Jesus. In the moment where he's dying on the cross, his enemies thought they won, his disciples thought they lost, and all things looked really bleak. But look at Jesus now. Highly exalted in the heavens. Look at Jesus now as on this day all around the world there are millions of people worshiping Him and loving Him in from their heart. Look at the fruit Jesus has now. And Jesus is telling the disciples, don't measure your life just in what you can see in this moment. No, 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 no. Yield it to God. Say, dear God, here is my life. And let God write the story because the fruit and the blessings and all that God brings out of our life Time will show. 
And so often we judge today, don't we? We judge right now. And we say, this is, I don't like this. Be gone from me. And in fact, Jesus is going to bring that up in just a moment. Very quickly, verse 26. Following, following. If any man serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant shall be also. If any man serves me, my father will honor him. He talks about giving up your life and letting go of your life. But now in verse 26, he talks about actively serving God. Doing the will of God. Following in the steps of Jesus. And he says, if any man serves me, let him follow me. Now that seems a little strange. If someone's serving Jesus, don't you think they're following Jesus? I mean, why would you need to tell them that? I mean, it's almost like a, it's almost like a, a young couple that are dating and you know, they get to that point of, of engagement and so on. And then she says, all right, if you, if you love me, then you'll marry me. Well, we would kind of assume that to be true, right? Like if they're, if they're committed, then yes, he's, he loves her. Then of course he's going to marry her. And he, here he, Jesus says the same thing. He's like, if any man serves me, let him follow me. Well, of course, right? But I think the temptation, the temptation is this, to think that we can serve Christ and also do our own thing, right? I'm going to serve Christ, but I'm also going to run my own life. And Jesus says, no, no, those two things don't go together. If, if you're going to serve me, then you, then you follow me. And where I am, there my servant shall be also. In other words, I will do the leading and you will follow along. And wherever I go, you go. This makes a lot of sense, but it's also very difficult. That final phrase says, if any man serves me, my father will honor him. I love how Jesus makes this so broad. If any man serve me. Jesus is saying, if anyone serves me, anybody, if anyone will serve me, my father will honor him. And remember, if you're going to serve me, you're going to follow me. So if any man follows me, my father will honor him. Maybe you've experienced this before, or maybe you've seen it with someone else, where maybe someone can play the piano really well, or they can design code really well, and someone will say to them, you're really lucky. You're lucky, and um, you, know, you just lucked out to have that skill. And sometimes there is that element of skill, but for most people that play the piano well, or that write code well, they've actually worked on it for a while, right? They've put in a lot of time and learning and sometimes they get it wrong and sometimes they uh, have to practice again and they fail and they get up and they try again. And There's a long process to get to that point. Someone that could design really well or whatever it might be and someone will just say, well, you're lucky. When the time comes to see him before Jesus Christ, as those who are redeemed wholly by His grace and forgiven, I don't think that we'll look at someone who's receiving great rewards and we'll say, boy, aren't you lucky. Why wouldn't we say that? Because rewards are not handed out based on luck. Luck is the luck of the draw. Luck is what God would give us, right? In His goodness, His, his kindness and His grace. But here Jesus is not saying the, the people will be honored based on drawing, you know, based on luck of the draw. No, no, no. If any man serves me, my Father will honor him. 
And on that day where we stand before the Lord, Jesus is saying there's a path for you to be honored, to receive blessings from the Lord on that day, and it will come from you serving me. And this is not just a call for pastors and missionaries. He says, if any man serves me, anybody, anybody who serves me, elsewhere in the Bible it says, if you give a cold cup of water in my name, you too shall have your reward. And you know what this tells me as a Christian? I need to every day just say, dear Lord, how can I serve you right here today? Right when I go to my job, how can I serve you? When I get home with the kids, how can I serve you? Dear God, how can I commit to your purpose today? Because you said in your word, if I will serve you, you will honor me. I don't think that's wrong to bank on that. Do you think that's wrong to bank on that? Jesus is telling us this. And he's saying, if you will yield up your life, if you will stop trying to control all the details, if you will let me write your story and you will listen to me and follow me and serve me, there's coming a day where it will pay off. Sometimes people have asked me or have wondered, how do you keep serving God over the long haul? Like, you know, it's easy when you hear a message or you kind of have this moment of, you know, inspiration and, you know, things are going well or whatnot and you serve the Lord. But, but how do you serve the Lord day by day by day by day over the long haul? How do you do that? And I think this verse is one that you just need to plug in your brain and get memorized, put it where you can see it. And the simple truth is this. If I can teach myself to remember that there's coming a day where I stand before God and where God who sees my life and knows my life and He knows how hard it is to let go of one's life and to truly let God write the details, on that day He will honor those who live for Him. That keeps me going. This puts gas in my tank. This keeps me going day by day. And if there is ever a message that I felt in my soul, this is one of them. Because the verse says, if any man serves me, my Father will honor him. In a moment, in a few days, Jesus will be on the cross. And there weren't people walking by saying, I want to follow that guy. I want to I join his group. There was one. Do you remember who that was? The thief on the cross said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember that? That always blows me away because here's one dying man making a request from another dying man saying, hey, will you let me be a part of your kingdom? How does that work? It works because he is not dying. He is dying but to live. He is not the end. This is the beginning. Now, very quickly, we must close. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this reason, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus says in these verses, should I pray that God would take me away from this hour? And this is a difficult text, especially when combined with Gethsemane. And clearly the verse says his soul was troubled. And if you read about Gethsemane, it says his soul was troubled. So Jesus was troubled then. Jesus is troubled here. And he asked the question, should I ask God to take me out of this hour? as though I should avoid all this. And the, the implication to me is no. For one reason, the rest of the verse says, for this reason I came to this hour. And secondly, Jesus actually prays something different. And we're going to close with, with this section. We won't get to all the verses we started out with. But I want you to think about what Jesus prays for. 
In verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. Do you know when our hour comes, our hour of trial and difficulty, do you know what we often pray? Father, save me from this hour. That's what we pray. Jesus is leading us to pray for something bigger than that. And that's what he prays in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Now this takes some maturity. This takes some grace of God that we would not just get lost in our own suffering and trial and difficulty and just simply ask for it to go away, which is what I often do. But it, to actually lift our eyes and to say there's something bigger than this pain right here and this trial, and that is, dear God, you're wanting to glorify yourself. Glorify yourself right here in this situation. That takes maturity. That takes grace, doesn't it? I remember one pastor talking about me, how he preached through some of these things, and he told me, he said, all this year I've challenged our church to pray this prayer. Now you listen to this prayer carefully. Father, glorify yourself. And all the Christians say, amen. But then the last part of the prayer says this, at my expense. Ooh, that's a tough prayer. Glorify yourself at my expense. And Jesus here is saying, Father, glorify your name. He says, I'm not just going to pray that this hour will disappear. I'm going to pray that your name will be glorified. And I cannot imagine this. This is the only place it's recorded in Scripture. But suddenly, out of heaven comes the voice of God. The voice of God breaks down into this discussion. And the voice of God says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Can you imagine? The voice of God from heaven. Jesus prays that the Father's name will be glorified and God answers. And the people around said, oh, that, that was like thunder. Which, if you remember your Bible well from when the Ten Commandments were given, the people said it sounded like thunder. And some people said, oh, that was an angel. And other people said, oh, it, it's, it's thunder. And clearly they didn't hear some of the things that were said. And I don't understand all the ins and outs of this, but... I do notice this. All the other things that Jesus said in the text that we've led up to, God didn't interrupt. God didn't break out when, when we read about, you know, the grain of wheat falling and loving your life. and God didn't intervene. But when Jesus at the end says, Father, glorify your name, God in heaven responded. And he responded in a really big way. He says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Has God done that? Absolutely. Absolutely God has done that. So I, I, I think that if we prayed that prayer, I think God would answer that. I think that if we had the heart that Jesus is trying to get us to have here, I think that we would have a response from the Lord and it would come sooner or later and God would be glorified. Remember John the Baptist would say, He must increase, but I must decrease. Two things we're going to close with. Two applications. First is, this needs to be lived out in a, a big and major way and in the small and day-to-day. -day. What I mean by that is this. I believe each Christian at some point in their Christian journey should come to a point where they tell God, you can have my life. Okay? You can have my life. In salvation, we receive a gift from God. We receive eternal life. It's given by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
It's by grace. It's a gift given to us. But in, in this point of today about yielding our life back to God, this is where we give something to God and we give Him our life. It's that yieldedness that says, God, here's my life. And I know that it is a day-to-day thing, but there does need to be a moment where you, from the heart, tell the Lord, here is my life. You can do what you will with it. It's a very important step. And if I could just say, it's, it's one of the most important steps you can make beyond receiving Christ and saving faith. But then comes our day-to-day, doesn't it? And this is where the rubber meets the road. And I'll be very quick to say, I have not always yielded my life to the Lord on a day-to-day level, in every decision, in every piece, right? But that one big decision sets me up for the day-to-day. And as you get out of bed, you can say, I've yielded my life to God, and so for this day, this day is yours, Lord. How should I live this day for you? Your life really can be transformed if you let your day-to-day be directed by God and yielded to Him. But so often we're tempted to take it back for our own agendas. Lastly, I want to talk about the two people that heard this, Andrew and Philip. How did this go for them? What do you think they responded with? Do you think they just said, oh, yes, we're going to do all that stuff right now? We agree 100%. I don't know if they fully understood or not, but I do know what happened a couple nights later. Jesus got arrested, and they went running. I mean, they went running so fast, they were lickety-split out of that garden. They were gone. And do you remember what Jesus had just said? He said, if any man serves me, let him follow me, that where I am, there shall my servant be also. Were they with him? Nope, they were gone. You say, Pastor, what's the application? The application is this. Sometimes we get this wrong. We simply live our lives for ourselves. We forget the purpose of God, and we just run to our own thing. But the good news about Andrew and Philip is they came around. They came back to God. They came back to Christ in a surrendered sort of way. And both Andrew and Philip would go out and would live their lives for Jesus. You may be sitting here and feeling a lot of guilt and condemnation because you say, I haven't been doing this. I don't, this this is not me. Like, I like the whole free gift part, but this death part, I don't, I don't like this. Well, I don't think anyone likes it. Andrew and Philip failed real big at this moment in time, but they came around. They came around. And my urge to you in your Christian life is, will you come around to these truths? Will you meditate on them? Will you say, dear God, I, this is painful. I don't, this is hard, but I, I want to do this. I want to let you lead in my life and, and live the life I have for you and not for myself. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Christian, I don't know how God's spoken in your heart, But I would urge you that if you need to make a decision today, that you would do so. If you need to kneel at your seat and pray, if you want to pray right where you are, if God's calling you to yield your life to Him, don't hold it back. Don't hold it back. The verse says that those who hate their life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. That is the most beautiful of promises if we would claim it. To keep our life into eternal life. Maybe you as a Christian have yielded your life to the Lord, but in, over time there's been a, a decay and a turning from that. Maybe this is a chance to renew that. However God would lead in your own specific heart, do respond to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this portion of your word. and 
The truths that you have laid out here are deep and they are difficult, but they are yet also so very, very simple and applicable to but let go of our life, to give it over to you, and to live it for your glory. I pray that we will not forget these truths. Help us to remember that when we live our lives for you, that you see and you know, and there will come a day where you honor us. Dear Father, help us not to believe the lie that we just live for today. This life is a passing life, and eternal life is eternal. Help us to live for that life that never ends. Bless each of your children here. If there's anyone that's unforgiven and unsaved and doesn't know the free gift of salvation, help them to see and understand that. I pray also that we who are yours would live in a way that shines the gospel. Hearts of love, lips of truth, help us to be your people day to day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet together. 326 is our closing song, 326.